Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. We're pleased to be joined today by AMTA Tabulation Director Jonathan Woodward. Jonathan competed at the University of Missouri from 1999 to 2003. He's been a member of the AMTA Board of Directors since 2007, and he's held a number of different roles within AMTA, including the Criminal Case Committee Co-Chair, the Rules Committee Chair, the Tournament Administration Committee or TAC Chair, and since 2012 has been AMTA's Tabulation Director. And we're thrilled to have him with us today to talk about all things related to mock trial and his time with uh, AMTA and and his career in mock trial. So Jonathan, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate you having me. So Jonathan, we like to start with guests at the beginning. We like to go back and get their origin story is what we call it. So I want to start there, uh, going all the way back to uh, your time at Mizzou or maybe even before then. What was it that got you started in mock trial and, and what was the origin story for you? Yeah, so for me, I I really have to go all the way back to middle school uh, for mine, I think. Uh, so I was on the middle school forensics team. And in Wisconsin middle school forensics, most of the categories were pretty similar to other speech competitions. Things like poetry, where you stand up and read a poem, or dramatic reading, where you stand up and, you know, read a scene from a play. But there was a category that I participated in called news reporting. And you could either do it individually or in a group of uh, up to three. And uh, you had to do a 10-minute simulated TV news broadcast. So it it had to include news, weather, sports, and an editorial. And I was a huge uh, news junkie as a kid. Uh, my parents always had TV news on in the house. We always had newspapers in the house. Uh, there was a period of time when I was a kid that I wanted to be a weatherman. Like that was my career goal as a kid. (laughs) Um, and so that was my first interaction, both with a competitive public speech activity, but also something where you were pretending to do like this other real world thing. Um, And so I did that for all three years of middle school and loved it. Uh, Did it with my best friend, seventh and eighth grade year, um, one state, you know, it was just awesome. And then, you know, we got to, um, got to high school and high school, they did not have news reporting as a category. So me and my best friend and all my other, um, group of friends, we go to the forensics team meeting at the beginning of freshman year high school, but I was sort of half-hearted about it because I knew that news reporting didn't exist and didn't really know if I was going to do the forensics team or not. And so we're sitting through the opening meeting and the teacher who was the coach of the forensics team, I'll never forget, he actually held up the envelope and he said, I got this in the mail from the state bar about this mock trial tournament. And I guess it's where you pretend to be lawyers and do a fake case. So if any of you are interested, you know, we've never done it, but let me know. (laughs) And, you know, me and my friends, we all left the forensics team meeting and we're like, you know, that mock trial thing sounds, sounds like it could be a lot of fun. And so a bunch of us went to the teacher. We're like, yeah, we want to try this mock trial thing. And they found sort of a younger lawyer who was somehow affiliated with someone at the school and within, you know, a few weeks, there I was a 14-year-old freshman showing up like an hour early to school to learn about hearsay and how to cross-examine witnesses and had a ton of fun preparing for regionals. And after regionals, I was hooked. You know, anyone who's done it knows that feeling of like, oh, yeah, I'm hooked. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the rest is, rest is history. Well, with that history, you know, I think one of the things that's that's interesting about your role within AMTA, right, is you competed at Mizzou for four years. And my understanding is at least for a lot of the time period since uh, you graduated and since you've uh, been working with AMTA, that you're not like a coach of a specific program. You're not really affiliated with like one specific program. What is it? I mean, the answer might just be the love of the activity, right? Like, I think that's kind of what brings us all together. But is there something specific that sort of keeps you doing everything that you do with this organization, with Empire, uh, despite the fact that maybe you're not 
like a coach of a specific program. Yeah. And I, I really never have been the coach of, of any program. Um, I kind of stayed, you know how it is, like after you graduate for the first year or two, you still know people on the team and like, okay, they want to email me like an opening or something. I'll look at it. I wouldn't, have, wouldn't really call myself like the coach of that team, even for those first couple of years, because I went to law school um, out at Pepperdine University in near Los Angeles. So I wasn't, you know, close to be doing any actual coaching. Um, and it was sort of during law school that, um, I continued to go back to Mizzou to help Barry Langford, who was at Columbia college, just sort of down the street from Mizzou. And, you know, while I was at Mizzou was when Barry was first starting to host the mid Missouri invitational. And we were, Mizzou was sort sort of kind of like the assistant host almost because Barry would actually do it on the Mizzou campus at the Mizzou law school. And that's where I first really got started with, um, you know, working in the tab room, getting to know how that worked, meeting some of the people who were coaches or involved in mock trial in that region. Um, like the Iowa coaches, Chris Lyons, uh, Mark Pullman, Don Rochter, sort of that sort of upper Midwest uh, group of mock trial folks, um, David Nelmark. Um, and that's how I sort of got involved with, you know, doing stuff in the tab room and actually the back end of a tournament, making the tournament happen as opposed to the competitive aspect um, of it. And I just really love doing it. Um, I've always, especially as a former competitor, I think there's just so much value in, you know, making sure that the competitors have an experience that, you know, runs according to the rules, is paired properly. You can never guarantee that everyone's going to leave happy from a tournament. Like almost by definition, everyone doesn't leave happy. Yeah, some teams advance, some teams don't, right? Um, and you can't solve the fact that, you know, there's going to be judging decisions that people are unhappy with, like the scores themselves. But I never want people to leave feeling like, you know, oh, if only the pairings, you know, hadn't been done wrong or the ballots were added improperly, you know, that there's some sort of structural thing that prevented it from being a truly fair experience. And to the extent that I can help make sure that you know, within the confines of the subjectivity of the judging, that it's as fair as possible. Um, you know, I find that to be really rewarding. Well, Jonathan, you just talked a lot about, you know, tab, the tab room and being a tab director. Uh, your current role, both within Empire and AMTA, is the tabulation director of the entire organization. And I was wondering if you could explain to everyone exactly what that means. I mean, it's a little beyond just you run the national uh, tournament, one of the uh, the tab rooms for that. I, it's a, a lot more than that. So could you just explain to us a little bit what exactly goes into your role? Yeah, for sure. And just to clarify one thing um, on the front end, I was I maybe had the title of tab director for Empire for a few years, and I still help out in their tab rooms, but uh, they have a great guy named Viran Wirasikura, who's their tab director now. Um, and so I'm uh, love working with him, but I'm not sort of in charge of tab for, for Empire and haven't been for the, for the past few years. So I don't want to overstep my, uh, my title with, uh, that organization, but I do still, uh, volunteer at their tournaments, um, and help in the tab room there. But in terms of the AMTA side of things, probably the, the main thing or the thing that, that takes up the most time, I guess you could say, is the tab director has always been the person who is the first point of contact for the amp reps during a tournament weekend. So whenever the amp reps have an issue with rule interpretation that they have a question on or the mechanics of tabbing, uh, anything weird that happens, um, any sort of a penalty or um, an appeal from something that happens, um, really basically anything that sort of exceeds the capability of the reps to kind of address on their own, or they just want some extra guidance. The tab director is the person who, who gets the call. Um, so it basically means that all of my February weekends every year, even the ones where I'm not going out and repping are, are pretty much shot. Um, yeah. 
Uh, one of the things I like to do is uh, see all of the Oscar nominated uh, <laughs> movies and those Oscars are always in February. So I always have to like sit on the aisle so that, you know, invariably when I get a call or text from someone at some random regional tournament, I can like duck out and answer the call <laughs> in the hallway of a movie theater. Um, taking calls at restaurants, hockey games. Uh, I'm just trying to think like some of the more bizarre venues where I've like taken calls about my <laughs> Um So that's, that's really the main thing during uh, regionals, especially because there's so many of them, but also orcs. Um, is sort of being that on-call person uh, for all the tournaments. Um, then the tab director tracks all of the bids. So um, all the tab summaries uh, come to me along with some other folks uh, so that I can give them a quick once over just to make sure there's no glaring errors. And then uh, maintain the earned bid list, the open bid list, both from regionals to orcs and from orcs to championship. Then probably the, the other like super stressful thing uh, that the tab director is responsible for is handling requests to move orcs bids or swap orcs bids and then distribute the open bids. So pretty much every year, those first two days after the last regional ends, I basically just totally block those off on my work calendar because I know that um, I'm going to be dealing with you know, requests for schedule conflicts or other things, you know, seeing how the power sort of lays out uh, once all the, the bids shake out. And then once that's finalized, you know, going through and getting all the open bids awarded as quickly as possible. Um, and that's why the tab director always serves on uh, the team assignment subcommittee so that the tab director is involved with those discussions about where teams are going, uh, what the orcs feeders are, uh, because having that knowledge is really important uh, when you get into the end of February and early March uh, to make sure that you know we're putting teams uh, where we want them to be and that uh, things are as even as they uh, can be, realistically speaking. Um, so then I obviously email all the bid winners. Um, Historically, the past few years, I've handled all the tweets that go up on the AMTA Twitter of, you know, the teams that, that earn bids from every tournament. Um, and then the tab director also, uh, by virtue of being tab director, serves on CRC. So I'm involved with all of those CRC um, appeals and, you know, egregious invention issues. Uh, the tab director serves on the executive committee. Um, and the tab director chairs the tabulation advisory committee, uh, which is primarily responsible for vetting any motions that come up for the summer meeting and the mid-year meeting that deal with tabulation. So that committee uh, reviews those motions to decide whether they should be tabled, whether they should be modified, uh, or whether we think they that the board should uh, take it up. One thing that I, I want, I was kind of curious as you were talking about it. You mentioned that you're kind of the on-call person uh, for reps on on regional and orcs weekends. Do you have any like funny stories or just crazy examples of like someone calling with just a, a random question or a crazy thing that had happened that you're maybe at liberty to say? If if there aren't, you know, we totally understand. But I just feel like the number of years you've done it. Yeah, it just sort of, you know, obviously, you know leaving out identifying details as much right, as possible. Right. <laughs> um, we had a judge who apparently was like clapping during the round for things the judge <laughs> liked and giving thumbs down during the round for things the judge didn't like in sort of a very <laughs> like animated, like okay. disruptive manner. Uh, so that was <laughs> real fine. time scoring real time. Yeah. Um, we had a judge who, as I understand it, missed part of the uh, judging orientation, um, but then proceeded to score on a one to four scale with one being good. Oh, God. Which is sort of a novel way of approaching the activity, but um, there was an orcs once where there was an appeal because one team thought the judge had fallen asleep going around and there was the sort of like factual question of had the judge in fact like fallen asleep during this orcs round um 
yeah, and then it's everything from, you know, we've had snowstorms, windstorms, you know, um, certainly teams that teams that show up late, teams that don't show up without any sort of contact or notification whatsoever. Um, you know, I sort of feel like every year, like, oh, I've seen it all. And then <laughs> there's just something like this year with the judge, like, giving the thumbs up and they're out. I'm like, oh, that has literally never happened before. <laughs> But that, I mean, you know, uh, you know, it's funny when I was thinking back about some of the things, you know, the tournaments where everything goes really smoothly, like we have a great host, great judges, and there are no complaints, like they feel really good during the weekend. And like you tell people like, oh, this host was great. And this was a great regional. But like a few years later, you sort of like forget about it in a good way almost because it was mm -hmm. like so positive and unremarkable, but the times when like, you know, a coach screams at you like in the tab room or, you know, something <laughs> like really bizarre happens. It's like, those are the things like you shouldn't be remembering them because they're not particularly nice. But uh, unfortunately those are the things that you just sort of remember because Thankfully, like every tournament, you don't have a coach yelling at you. But the times <laughs> when it does happen, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember exactly who that was and when it happened. <laughs> so you, you kind of mentioned this in talking about the work you've done with the organization. But one of the things that we were curious about, uh, I know I, I think I've even chatted with with you about this before and with other folks before about how AMTA's sort of tabbing system and, and by tabbing system i guess i'm sort of including uh the pairing system and kind of how tournaments are are run uh how that has changed over the years and i was wondering if you could go through i know there have been many sort of smaller changes but what are how has that system evolved over the years in the time you've been with the organization how if our current slate of competitors and our listeners were to have competed you know say 15 years ago what would have been different about how tournaments are run from the tab perspective than how they are now. Yeah, it, it's really interesting that you picked 15 years as as the date for that because things were really, really different 15 years ago. Okay, I just picked a number, so. <laughs> yeah, no, and you know, I, I was sort of thinking back on it and I feel like, you know, if you break it out into decades, you know, the, the decade of the 2000s, which was basically sort of when I started competing up to 2009, which was when Orcs first started. There were just a ton of tab changes during that decade. I actually had to go back and dig up some of the old tab manuals to even kind of like refresh my own memory about, you know, all of the different changes that there were in that decade. It was just constantly in flux with, huh. with, tweaks and rule changes and then undoing the rule changes whereas if you look at from the beginning of orcs in 2009 if you were to take it forward to 2019 there were almost no changes i mean except for really kind of minor sort of tweaks on top of the fundamentals of the system so someone competing in 2009 in the very first year of orcs would be would find almost no differences with the way we did things in 2019. I'm obviously excluding 2020 because we had a pretty major change with the new um, Orcs pairing system. But even regionals are, are would have been essentially the same. But man, from 2000 to 2009, I mean, it was everything from... Well, first of all, just the fact that we didn't have Orcs, right? Um, it was the old setup where at each regional tournament, the top certain number of teams, and it wasn't a fixed number of teams, but the top two, three, four teams got to bid directly to the championship, which in the really old days was called gold. Uh, so if you ever hear some old timers like myself refer to golds, that's why it was called like the gold nationals. And then the next few teams, so like the maybe the fourth, fifth, and sixth place teams, or the fifth, sixth, and seventh place teams. Again, it depended on a very complicated set of facts. But those next few teams would get to go to Silver Nationals with sort of the, 
extra layer being if you were one of the top teams at Silver Nationals, you then got to go to championship, to golds. So it was this sort of two-tiered system where if you did really well at regionals, you got your championship bid. And then if you were kind of in that next group of teams, you got to go to Silver Nationals with the hopes that you would do well enough at a 64-team Silver Nationals to get to move on to the championship. And obviously, you know, there was pretty significant growth um, in AMTA in in the 2000s. You really saw a change from, as I perceived it, from sort of the origins of AMTA where all of the teams were coached, um, coached teams by someone who was either on the board or was really familiar with mock trial. And you really saw this growth into mock trial expanding into student-run teams or teams being run more as clubs, even if they had a faculty advisor or like a law student coach or something like that. Um, and you really saw the increase of of parity, which is, you know, why we needed to do something to um, to add that orcs level, because it just was no longer really equitable for, um, you know, a team that happened to go 8-0 at regionals with maybe a week's schedule uh, to get to go directly to championship. Um, But even some of the other, um, some of the other rule changes or things that got tried out in the two thousands, there were, there was like a year or two where there was no side constraint for round two. So it was possible to go P P D D. Um, There was for like two seconds of, they experimented. I don't think they ever actually did this during a sanctioned tournament, but they had changed the rules so that you could have a same school or no, they changed the rules so that you could have a prior meeting match as long as it was on the other side of the case. So you could play the same opponent twice so long as you were playing them on the opposite side of the case. And then they got rid of that within like six months or something. <laughs> um just the way that the pairings were structured, it was this very strange kind of, um, in my view, like unnecessarily complex bracket system. So like after round one, if there were four teams at two and O, those four teams would be sort of like a bracket unto themselves that would get high load on the defense side for round two. So you were still playing a two and O team, but you were getting like the sort of weird theoretical power protection because you were facing the second ranked 2-0 team as opposed to the number one and then the round three pairings were even weirder i mean it's just just going back and looking at some of those old tab manuals today i was like oh my goodness like why did we do things this it was just so complex but i guess you know i have to really give a lot of credit to people um especially david nelmark um uh, Chris Lyons, you know, those were some of the folks that really uh, were instrumental but, uh, in terms of getting a, a published tab manual, uh, getting the ORC system in place for 2009, just sort of cleaning a lot of the stuff up into more or less the form that we know it today, which is just a lot more, even though it's it's nuanced and maybe there's a little bit of a learning curve to it, it's just way more straightforward than it used to be. So uh, obviously you've been involved in this organization for some time now, uh, Jonathan. And I, th- I think that one of the things that Ben and I are always kind of intrigued by is that, you know, nowadays they're kind of the, the standout competitors that we could talk about for this year and for the last couple of years. But over the time that you've been involved, that you've been following AMTA, are there any particular rounds or competitors that really stand out to you uh, just as, as phenomenal competitors or rounds or just interesting things that have happened? Yeah. I mean, always the first one that, that comes to mind, which was sort of um, sort of like one of the first kind of like all-stars um, and also just how, you know, she's progressing her, her career as Amanda Bond at UCLA. Um, she was on their teams that won championship in, I think that would have been 03 and 04, or maybe it was 04 and 05. Um, 
she was just a phenomenal competitor and she went on to um she's a litigation attorney now at a firm in Los Angeles Sussman Godfrey I think she was like the youngest or one of the youngest lawyers to make partner there she's argued before the Ninth Circuit US Court of Appeals um um so just just a phenomenal competitor um the 2009 championship round always stands out to me as one of my favorite championship rounds. Uh, that was the first year of the orc system. So it was the first time that everyone at the championship had to kind of run through that gauntlet of uh, qualifying through two different uh, tournaments. And um, that was the year Northwood uh, University won championship. And that's a team that I was... Um, sort of think back to, you know, whenever, you know, you, you hear people say or see people post online about, um, you know, it's impossible for new schools to get started, or there's all these sort of structural roadblocks and in, in teams way. And Northwood is just sort of uh, the type of team that, that I think really disproves that because they went from, I don't know if they even competed in AMTA like four years prior to that, like in, 07 or so like no one had ever heard of Northwood but um Delois really just Delois Leapart uh their uh their coach um just did a a bunch of stuff to really get that program off the ground in, in such a short amount of time um and that was just amazing to see a program that hadn't existed for for more than a few years get to the final round and then win the championship um and that was just such a dynamic team if you've ever had the chance to watch um the video of that final round that was just a really fun final round um i was on the case committee for that uh bnn versus uh or that drew walton bnn case so i i'm always a little bit partial to uh to that case as well so this is a really cool story from that year there was a um, a guy, I, a guy on their team, I was repping the Milwaukee regional that year and there was an odd number of teams. So we needed a buy buster and, uh, Deloa said, well, I've got this guy that I brought with us. He was just going to be like running the video camera to tape their team. He wasn't actually going to be competing, but he's been coming to practices and he knows like some of the witnesses and stuff. So he could be a witness for the buy buster. I'm like, oh, great. He ended up getting a perfect 20 as a witness on the buy buster. Wow. <laughs> so she ended up putting him on their orcs team. And then I'm trying to remember if he got a witness award at orcs also. I'd have to go back and look at the tab summary. But all, obviously they made it out of orcs, made it to championship. Uh, he was on the final round. Uh, his name is Bryce Rucker. Uh, she always talks about him like, oh, he was just this guy from the football team who we brought along to run the videotape. And <laughs> and now he's a litigation attorney in Detroit. So <laughs> um, that's just a, a really cool story of, you know, how mock trial can really change sort of the trajectory of, of a person's life and career. Well, Jonathan, one of the things and, and this question is one that I I. I think there might be a couple other people who are interested in this answer. I know I am very interested in this answer, but so, you know, one of the things you do for empty, you kind of alluded to it earlier is you're in some ways kind of the public face, right? You've done like YouTube videos for AMTA. You, you do some of the, you know, you do the uh, division draw and things like that. Uh, and specifically you're the person who announces at least for the last several years, the winner of the championship, right? You're the person who gets to say, each year, the American Mock Trial Association presents the Richard Calkins Award, named in honor of AMTA's founder, to the championship team of the Intercollegiate Mock Trial Championship. And it is my great honor to announce your 32nd national champion is Yale University. Miami University. Harvard University. So I'm just kind of curious what that's like, right? Like that's got to be an interesting responsibility to be the person who both is kind of a, not only the only public face of AMTA, but one of the major public faces of AMTA, and then plays this really featured role at really sort of the apex of our season every year. Yeah, it's, it's a really cool feeling. Um, just because everything that 
everyone in AMTA does is kind of focused on that moment. Like mm-hmm. not just that round, but sort of that moment. Yeah. Um, whether it's the case committees, both for the main case and the championship case, or you know the TAC folks and and Josh Lacrone who gets all the regional and orcs hosts together, like, or even the stuff that isn't you know something you would typically think of as a competitive focus, like Matthew Eslick, who is our treasurer, who you know handles all the travel reimbursements and manages the money in our accounts. You know everything that everyone does is you know focused on this competitive season, which is always focused on sort of winnowing down teams through this three level of competitions till you get to this, the, the final round. And then, then there's a champion. I mean, it's all sort of up to this one moment. So it's just a really cool feeling to feel like all of the work that everyone has done for, you know, the whole season and in some cases longer than that year um, has finally come to fruition. Um. Mostly, I'm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say anxious, but uh, you know, I, I guess I'm a little bit nervous that I'm not going to screw anything up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask specifically about like a Steve Harvey fear. Yeah, so. it's it's funny that you mentioned Steve Harvey because that was literally like when that happened, that whole Steve Harvey thing. Like, I just got this <laughs> pit in my stomach. I'm like, oh my god, I hope that never happens to me because like I, <laughs> I, not that announcing the mock trial champion is necessarily the same as announcing what was that miss america i think it was or whatever it was yeah. um, best yep. picture or something was it or no was it miss no, no, i don't it was, know whatever yes yeah. yeah no miss miss universe or something or miss world yeah the the best picture thing where they screwed that up too that was also like the same like pit in my stomach yeah. i got when that happened <laughs> um where like the guy is running across the stage with the headset <laughs> i'm like oh that would be me um <laughs> So honestly, the more of the stress is actually when when I'm in the back room with whoever else, like actually tabbing the ballots, because mm-hmm. um, one, it's like I want to make sure we have all the blue ballots. There's so many judges. Oftentimes in those final rounds, it's like I would never want to get to a situation where like we added them all up and then like realized afterwards we forgot to grab a blue from a judge or something, or just you know that we you know put the point differential on the wrong side of the ballot it's just yeah. much more stress in actually like calculating and tabbing and making sure the final result is correct um especially the more close um it is that 2018 uh final round between uh miami and yale up in uh st paul was just so incredibly close i just remember like double checking stuff really quick and laying <laughs> the ballots out to make sure that all the point differentials were correct. Cause that was like a two point difference on one ballot decided that one. So that one was, yeah. was really nerve wracking. Got to that dramatic read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, once I'm certain that I have like the, the fact of it, correct. The rest of it is just sort of fun. Like you're just sort of feeding off of the energy in the room. Um, you can tell like both teams are about to stroke out. Um, and I do my best to like, try and not like look too much at one team. Like I want to see how the winning team reacts, but I also don't want to be looking at them too much or like give away too much about which team won. So, um, I want to make it dramatic and obviously play off of that tension. Um, but I also want it to be, um, to be fun and, you know, have it be the joyful moment it's supposed to be. And hopefully I always hope that the team that doesn't win obviously it's kind of crushing in that immediate moment but at the same time like you're the number two team in the country which i think is pretty cool like you still get an obscenely large trophy um <laughs> so i you know i always hope that the team that that didn't prevail in the round ends up still sort of overcoming that initial disappointment of not winning and then getting a chance to enjoy the fact that they still you know had this awesome accomplishment so sticking on this note of the final round, uh, I have to say that one of the things that inspired me uh, when when Ben initially approached me about doing a podcast to, to do this was having seen and, and listened to the final round commentaries that uh, that you and Josh Lacrone had done and that I think Josh had done a few times in the past. Um, but I, I loved listening to that final round commentary of, you know, these, you know, 
really experienced members of AMTA talking about what they thought of the round, who they think got the edge after each uh, aspect. And because that's what I would do with my friends. We'd be watching me like, oh, you know, so-and-so team totally just won this. Right, right, and right. Uh, seeing that was always really, really fun and exciting for me. And it, it really enhanced the final round watching experience for me. And I was wondering um, what, A, kind of drove you guys to initially do it. And the, the nerd in me is ask, begging and asking, why has it stopped? So uh, I wouldn't – I don't think it's fair to characterize it that it stopped. Um, it, it's really more a function of with each particular championship um, – sort of what the setup is for the recording mm-hmm. and, you know, who is coming in to do the production of the live stream. So as I recall, the first time we ever did a commentary with the live streamed final round was the 2014 championship in Orlando. Um, so that was the last championship with the same case the whole year. That was the Rockter world case. Um, that was the, uh, Princeton versus UCLA final round. And there was a, as I recall, it was one of the TV stations from Orlando that, um, that university of central Florida, Margarita Koblas had gotten to do the production work and the actual streaming of the live stream. And between that and Kaplan, uh, our sponsor, that was sort of how the idea of doing the commentary sort of arose. And because it was a TV station doing the setup, they had the the technical capability to do it. So that was actually Josh LaCrone and a guy named Jay Thomas from Kaplan Test Prep, who were the commentators uh, for that final round. Then I think we did not have commentary in 2015 when Josh hosted in Cincinnati. And that was mostly because of sort of technical things with having it in a federal courthouse. And then in Greenville in 2016, again, they had a local TV station who was doing the uh, the production. So they actually had like a full switcher in the side room um, at the conference center where they had um, the final round that Josh and I were in. So there was actually a director who was, you know, punching between the different cameras. Uh, they huh. were routing it through the station to get out to the live stream. That's awesome. Um, and then in 2017 in LA, Ian Lambert and I did the commentary that mm-hmm. year. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but I think it's more just the the couple years since then, it's just been sort of technical things. Like obviously at, at Drexel at the law school in Philadelphia, the cameras and everything are sort of built into that courtroom. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of pre-set up for live streaming. Um, so there really wasn't, as I understood it, like a sort of the technical layout for there to be commentary on top of the live stream. So it's certainly possible that, um, depending on how that is being produced in any given year, that, that commentary, uh, could come back. It's just sort of a year, year by year thing on how that goes. Well, I also kind of want to move on a little bit away from the final round as much as I love talking about all the fun stuff that has to do with it. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, through just the the years I've been involved is that there are a lot of different systems beyond just what AMTA uses for TAB. Um, You have the trial by combat check marks. Um, Yale for a while uh, had their own invitational uh, weighted partial ballot system. Um, Empire has, uh, you know, some tweaks with the pre-trial have you ever considered um, or, you know, been, obviously you've been involved with some of these, but been involved with other types of tab systems um, and scoring systems? And what do you think are the merits or limitations of both the current system and some of the others that have been used in the past? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that, especially for the individual competitions, you know, the trial by combat, Top Gun, those sort of things, you know, obviously I think a, a checkmark system maybe works works better for that. I don't know that something like that is really suited to a team um, activity where you're, where you're trying to score the relative merits of um, sort of the team as a whole. Um, I don't know that there's any been any recent sort of substantive discussion about, you know, major changes to uh, the AMTA pairing system. I know back in, I think it was back in 2008. So that was the board meeting where we, you know, 
finalized the org system. There were just a ton of really meaningful changes um, at that board meeting. Um, but I know there was a proposal that got voted down to um, do away with uh, the witness cross score. So basically that proposal would have said that witnesses just get a single score as opposed to two scores. Um, and that's something that really has not been brought up or talked about ever since. And I think for the most part, that's with pretty good reason. But that's sort of the most recent time I can think of that there was sort of a major proposal. That same year, there was also a proposal to add some measure of like a team score or a theory score. And the argument that that I happen to agree with that always comes up against that is I think that tends to reflect uh, too much of the case bias as it pertains to that particular judge. Um, I think certainly some judges could, you know, separate out their own case bias or their thought on the merits of the case um, from the case theory. But um, I think that's the danger with having some sort of an extra score just for case theory or you know, the danger is judges just use it to sort of, you know, arbitrarily give points to the team that they sort of vaguely liked better for whatever reason. Uh, and it maybe isn't as valid as, you know, scoring the individual merits of each particular function. But again, that's something that, um, you know, you hear sort of hmm. generally talked about every once in a while. People are like, oh, there should be a, a team theory score. But really within... AMTA, I'm, I'm not aware that it's an idea that's had any sort of major traction really ever. I mean, we it got voted down back in 2008 and mm -hmm. has never really seriously come up since then. Yeah, I, I know that Yale, for their tournaments for a while, have done kind of a, like, a who won the round score at the end, just like, you know, pick one of the two teams. Um, and they, they've published some of the data on that that was always interesting. But, I mean, UVA has their, uh, they do their attorney and witness awards where it's kind of adjusted based on how many ballots uh, that side is won. Uh, do you, like, you kind of hit on this, but do you think that there would ever be, you know, if a new system came into play, do you think that uh, you'd be interested in implementing it? Or do you think that, you know, this system is tried and true and we should stick with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to say I'm, I'm never opposed to sort of considering a, a proposal and talking about it and debating it. But sort of hearkening back to what I mentioned before, you know, you where we had that that decade from 2000 to 2009, where there were just sort of constant tab changes, and every year you were having to relearn a new system, and you compare that to, um, you know, 2010 through the present, where with the exception of the new orcs pairing system, things have stayed, you know, pretty consistent, with the exception of some sort of minor tweaks here and there i feel like we've hit a pretty good stride and i'm always cautious about you know a lot of the times the tab motions that get proposed are sort of in reaction to a particular event as in you know something happens at x tournament where you know x team you know, hit a certain number of teams or the impermissibles got resolved in a certain way and Team X didn't get a bid and it's really bad that Team X didn't get a bid. And then there's this attempt to sort of like change the tab system in a way that Team X would have gotten a bid. And I feel like no matter what system you have, there's always going to be, you know, that sort of outlier case where it, it you know, a particular team that people have the consensus as a good team doesn't bid out for whatever reason. And I, I think you need to be cautious about sort of trying to constantly chase those outliers. And I think when you look at the system we have now as a whole, especially with the new orc system, I think we've really gotten ourselves into a good place. And so I would be, I would sort of approach any major changes with a skeptical eye i don't I, I never feel that like we need to change things for the sake of changing things 
So that's why, you know, something like the new Oryx pairing system, it's like, okay, we've, we've had the old system for 10 years now. We're not just reacting to something bad that happened in year one or year two. You know, we've had a chance to see how it works over a long period of time, you know, and here's something we can, we can change with it. Um, so I don't know that there are any sort of really main glaring issues with the actual tab system that I feel like we need to address in the coming years. But again, that's not to say that any proposed changes are just going to be sort of brushed aside or not talked about or considered, because we always talk about and discuss things that are serious proposals. You kind of alluded to it in a in a couple different points there, so I'll move specifically to one of the major changes that has uh, been implemented in the last couple of years, and that's the new orcs pairing system that was uh, implemented this past year and used in the five orcs that we were able to uh, to have so far. So, sort of a two parter. When that uh, was being drafted, uh, what were your thoughts about it? Did you have some reservations? Were you sort of fully in support of it from the beginning? And then uh, based on, and, and, you know, we've, Drew and I have both sort of said we have a very small sample size, right, of how it's been implemented so far. But what were your thoughts, at least on the preliminary data set that we got from those five orcs that were ran using the new uh, orcs pairing system? Yeah. So as I recall, I think Justin Bernstein first proposed this back in 2013. And I was not in favor of it at the time. And it obviously didn't pass at the time. Um, again, at the, at the time, it seemed to me to be more of a reaction to sort of certain kind of outlier cases that were seen as undesirable. It, it kind of came off as a little bit of too much of a perception to me, as well as I think to some of my colleagues, as sort of AMTA trying to determine too much who the winners and losers were going to be. Um, and frankly, at that point, we were only, what, four years into orcs. Um, it just seemed like a little too soon to have that sort of, you know, drastic change in how we were proceeding with those. But I think after, you know, looking at it over the course of, of 10 years and having these sort of numerous examples, even though I think on the whole, the old system did a good job of identifying the best six teams to go on. There were certainly more than just sort of a few outlier cases. And I think Justin Bernstein made a, made a compelling argument about why this system was better. Um, and, and I don't think there was any harm to, to trying it because, you know, if, if we did it this year for a couple of years and it was just awful and everybody hated it, we can go back to the old way. Like that's not the end of the world. Um, but I agree with you guys. I was really happy with uh, with the way it went at the five orcs uh, that we got to use it uh, use it at. Um, I think in a lot of ways it's easier for the reps to to actually um, implement because you don't have uh, that round four bracketing process that's that's kind of intricate. Yeah. Um, and if you've not tabbed before, it's sort of difficult to to learn and grasp. Um, and I think it, I think it did exactly what we wanted it to do. I think it nicely, um, broadly equalized the strength of schedule, um, so you don't have those outlier cases like like we talked about on our uh, sort of live stream that we did ahead of time, where some teams don't hit any top teams and other teams hit multiple top teams. Um, I don't think you're ever going to get it to a point where it's sort of like this mathematically perfect equal schedule, but I think the way it's set up right now where it's, you know, in these sort of, you know, broadly equivalent tiers, I think that that accomplishes what we want it to do. Um, and I think it has the subsidiary benefit of making CS a better tiebreaker. Um, so overall I was real pleased with it and I can't, you know, like you said, we, we have a limited sample size because um, we only had the five works as opposed to all eight, but there was nothing I saw from, from the five where there's anything, you know, obvious or glaring that I think we would need to, you know, address or fix, um, immediately going forward. Um, I don't know what my colleagues are thinking, but, uh, at least for myself, 
Um, I would advocate for just sticking with it um, as it's written for uh, for next year. Yeah, and, and your thoughts pretty pretty much mirror mine, having had a team go through it. And obviously, we got a bit out, and so I think that contributes in some way to sort of feeling positively about the system. But it felt pretty equ- equitable, and uh, I also very much agree. Yeah, I've never uh, repped an orcs before, but I've repped at regionals a couple of years now, and the the round four flip is, you know, I mean, it's 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 it depends on kind of how things shake out, but it can be a little bit complicated, and it seemed like. Minus the sort of the fact that the reps uh, at the tournament, the orcs I was at, were doing the system live for the first time. And so obviously I think they were a little more cautious. Uh, it seemed fairly uh, straightforward and, and uh, easy to follow. Y- you know, the, the, with that, though, one of the things that is sort of a hallmark of the tab room, right, is the tab cards being laid out and sort of the very precise system that the you know tabulation manual instructs us amateur reps to go through. Uh, and I know over the years, there have been some different systems that have uh, done that electronically. Uh, I can say, you know, I've been to a couple invitationals that have done that. I'm always very skeptical of that when I go to an invitational that, that has one of those systems. But have you worked with systems like that before? And what are your thoughts on whether or not we'll ever be able to transition from the sort of the card system we have now to an electronic uh, tabbing and pairing system. Yeah. So yeah, I have worked with um, electronic tabbing systems at Empire. And I feel like invariably every year, at least one sort of random student will email me about, you know, they're a computer science major and they want to write a program to tab for AMTA. Like every year without fail, (laughs) a different student emails me about that. And it's really like, it's great. Like if, they want to do that as a project or something that would be fine. But I think there are a couple, well, there's one drawback and there's one reason why I don't think it's feasible, at least for the time being. And so the first thing that is sort of advocated as a reason why electronic tabbing is better than than manual tabbing is time. Uh, the argument is that when you do it electronically, it's faster than doing it manually. And having done both, I don't think that's actually the case. Because what takes the longest is the the actual data entry. In other words, taking what is on the paper ballot and putting it into a spreadsheet or a program or something along those lines. And if you're going to do it in a way that has sort of the same level of accuracy as what we do now, you need two different people to do it. So that if, you know, the first person enters a number wrong, hopefully the second person will catch it and flag it. And I don't think that data entry is any faster typing it into a spreadsheet or program than it is just taking a blue ballot and adding it up. Um, The second thing is just the transparency aspect of it. And whether you're talking about the raw scores or the blue ballot itself, or you know the way that the the pairings lay out i think one of the great things about amda again this is where i have to give credit to david nolmark you know one of my predecessor tab directors is we just have a far more robust and transparent scoring and tabulation process than any other you know mock trial competition i'm aware of at any level that's definitely true and I think coaches and competitors now are used to, you know, going into the tab room and seeing the cards and, you know, kind of using those as a guide of seeing, okay, well, they're down at four and if they win both and we split and, and kind of, you know, especially after the round four pairings layout, kind of hashing out what might happen. Um, and obviously, as being involved in this activity as long as I have. I don't think it's a surprise or shock to say that certain members of the community are on occasion a bit of the conspira- conspiracy-minded. Is that, is that the <laughs> best way to say it? Um, and so I think if you transition to a system where you know the scores get typed into a black box and the black box spits out the pairings and these are the pairings because the black box says they are the pairings, I don't think that is a step 
forward in terms of sort of public trust and confidence. Um, even if it were to be, you know, entirely something that could, you know, you could go back and, and double check and we still have a tab manual and whatnot. I, I think there's just more sort of public confidence and trust in the results when it's something that's done, you know, openly and is on paper and you just see it as it lays out. So Jonathan, one of the things that we've talked about a few times now is how, uh, the the activity or really how tab and how the scoring has evolved over the years uh and you know we talked about how you've gone from the silver and gold tier to the, the national champions we have now but how do you think that amta both as an organization and as an activity has has fundamentally changed through the years um beyond just the the way that we score it yeah so like i mentioned earlier i think you know one of the first major changes was around the time when I was a competitor um, because I was on a team that was a, a student run team. Um, and that was just starting to become, uh, I feel like more of a, a common thing around the time that I was competing. Um, I, I always have to chuckle to myself um, sort of the way that, that I, sort of came to run Mizzou mock trial was when I got to campus as a freshman, uh, the team had been started by a bunch of upperclassmen who all did mock trial together in high school. And then they were all graduating, getting involved with other things. And I was sort of literally the last man standing. <laughs> and so at the end of my freshman year, they like handed me a folder and they were like, good luck next year. <laughs> um, and so just by myself, I, you know, reserved the activity fair table and, kind of managed to scrape together a team. So I always laugh, like this time of year, I see all the social media posts about teams having like their executive board elections. And I'm like, oh, we never had any elections <laughs> when I was at Mizzou because it was me and I ran the team. Um, but, you know, so that was sort of a major thing, the, the shift away from the majority of teams being these sort of institutional coached teams Around the time I competed, John Vile, who was the coach at Middle Tennessee State, published a book. Uh, I believe it was called Pleasing the Court, and it was sort of meant to be like a mock trial handbook. Yep. And I think that was really instrumental in sort of furthering, you know, student-run teams feeling comfortable with, you know, kind of dipping their toes into the activity. And then obviously the activity had grown to the point where you started to have you know, alumni who were going to found and coach new programs. Um, and you just saw this growth into, um, you know, the activity that looks more like we recognize it today, where it's sort of this mix. Um, it, it's almost sort of a spectrum almost of, you know, sort of the absolute student run teams on one end where there's no sort of coaching involvement whatsoever to student run teams that have like law student coaches to, you know, like adjunct faculty coaches, and then all the way to, you know, the the teams that do it as a class with a, you know, tenured professor as the coach who makes all the decisions sort of thing. And then also I think AMTA as a board has really changed a lot and that's even really been more in the past five or six years um i think if you just if you compare the board composition now to what it was about six or seven years ago um it's just a lot more sort of former competitors um you know folks who competed you know my age or more recently um a little bit younger overall i feel like um so I think that's been uh, that's been sort of important in terms of you know thinking, being forward thinking, addressing some of these growth issues that we're uh, that we've been dealing with for the past few years. Um, so really, more of the recent change I feel like has been more internal in terms of how AMTA functions. Um, you know, obviously, you think back to you know, the beginning part of the 2010s, we were still doing championship every other year in Des Moines. Hmm. Uh, you know, we did championship in Des Moines and 
2009 and 2011. And then over the past decade, we've, um, you know, Dick Calkins uh, retired from the board. Uh, the AMTA office moved out of Des Moines. Um, so it's been sort of this, uh, you know, process of really sort of coming into our own um, and kind of shifting to a new era or, of the organization, I feel like. So Jonathan, I think really the last thing that I want to talk about uh, relates to where we are presently, right? So we're recording this uh, sort of near the end of April 2020. Everyone is is uh, in various forms of self-isolation during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously, AMTA has uh, postponed the 2020 National Championship as well as the three remaining orcs. Uh, we fully understand that, you know, you, just like anyone else on the AMTA board, can't talk about sort of the internal discussions or anything that's being, you know, planned or anything like that, right? But obviously, it's been kind of a, a chaotic time period for, for everyone and sort of the whole world, but but specifically for us as our competitive season was uh, sort of cut short abruptly. So what has it been like over the last several months working within AMTA in terms of adjusting to uh, the circumstances as quickly as they changed and developed uh, and working with sort of your peers on the board to uh, sort of adapt as best as you all could, uh, given the the circumstances we're all in? Yeah, the past, you know, the past month has just been, it's been like uncomfortably quiet. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's gotten to the point where like every once in a while, we'll just like Zoom with some of my board colleagues just because like, you miss talking to them. Yeah, absolutely. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's it's it it just sucks. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I just feel so bad for, um, you know, for all the teams that that earned bids, the teams that didn't even have a chance to to go to orcs yet. All the seniors. It's not just mock trial, right? It's like people just kind of got kicked off of their college campuses. They're not. I don't know that anyone's having a graduation ceremony this year as best as I can tell. Uh, so it's just like a really weird time for everyone. Um, it was really cool to see um, Justin Bernstein and UCLA law put together that, that online competition. That was just sort of the perfect way to, uh, to kind of fill the void. Um, I got to judge the opening statements um, finalists in that, that competition. So that was just really cool to, uh, to see so many people get get involved with that and have that be uh, a way to uh, to fill the void for the time being, um, so that was awesome of of Justin to be able to to get that put together. But um, it was just sort of wild how how quickly everything came to a screeching halt, um, and that's not just with AMTA; that's like literally with everything. Like right. it all happened in that one that one week, yeah. um, mm -hmm. and you know. It's funny. I remember, I remember, I got to rep at the Orcs in Geneva on the weekend when we had Orcs, and we were like, there was discussion about COVID nineteen, um, but it certainly wasn't like of the dimension of like, you know, oh, you know, all of the remaining tournaments are probably going to get canceled. Like that wasn't part of the conversation yet, um, in terms of anything, right? Like, yeah pro sports were still happening and the NCAAs were still happening. And I remember like we were watching some college basketball in the tab room at Geneva. And <laughs> no one was saying, Oh my God, how could they be doing college basketball? It was just, Hey, what's the score and what's happening. And then I just remember thinking to myself, you know, as long as, as like college sports and sports are still happening, like, you know, there's probably no reason why we can't still happen. And then like that Tuesday I was at lunch at a, a sub shop that always has ESPN on and they were announcing that the Ivy league had canceled their conference tournament, which I think was one of the first conference tournaments that got canceled. And I just sort of got this like knot in my stomach, like, Oh, here it comes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is, this is not good. And that was, you know, it was in that time period where a bunch of schools were starting to impose, you know, like travel restrictions and say that teams couldn't compete at the, or travel to the remaining orcs. And, I think it was over lunch that I there was an article that was posted in the Atlantic that day that was entitled "Cancel Everything," <laughs> that was sort of advocating for for you know really strict social distancing for the foreseeable future, and I, that was just sort of when it was starting to like 
like gel in my mind that like oh yeah there's there's probably not going to be any mock trial anytime soon and then the next day of course was when the nba kind of suddenly canceled in the middle of the game or something and so it just everything just happened so quickly that week um and just everyone uh that i was working with from you know especially will warahay our our president and and missy watt the tac chair josh lacrone who um is sort of the the liaison with all the hosts and chairs our our host committee you know it, it was just a lot of really intense work that week not knowing at first whether there was going to be tournaments to by the end of the week it being very obvious that there were not going to be tournaments or anything else uh going on in the country um and really since then it's just been yeah like i said it's it's just been quiet (laughs) just because of you know all this uncertainty of you know when is it going to be safe to do things again and to what extent so um but it's it's been cool to get to interact with with people through the online competition and I, I'm known to, I'm known to post on the meme page <laughs> from time to time so I I get to you know uh, be silly and and talk to people on the meme page and and that sort of thing but um, but yeah mostly I just feel bad for uh, for all the seniors who um, had their season kind of season and college career overall cut short and for our host obviously i know you talked to Devin a few weeks ago but um to put all that work into a championship and then have it plug have the plug pulled so suddenly and so close yeah uh to the tournament just oh uh, it's a gut punch yeah yep. i, I yep. hate it but at the same time i mean there's no no other thing we could have done but doesn't mean we have to like it right yep well, Jonathan, uh, we appreciate you know your thoughts and your candor on that, and we really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us. We know that you, uh, along with your colleagues on the board, have been you, – you do a great deal in general, but obviously have all been doing a great deal e- even more lately dealing with the circumstances. So we really appreciate that, and, and thank you so much for sitting down and take, taking some time to talk to us. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, happy to. Anytime. <laughs>